If you would turn in your Bible with me this morning, then God's word to us, John, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 3. We'll be talking about John. Luke chapter 3, as we're continuing in our series in the Gospel of Luke. Not going to, as we go through this series, you'll just notice I'm not going to hit every text. We're going to be uh, trying to capture a sense of Jesus' ministry, his life as we just move forward up to Easter Sunday, his resurrection. And so we'll be just enjoying Luke for these coming weeks. Luke chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 20 of Luke chapter 3. This is God's word. Let's give it our attention. Trust that God has something to say to us this morning. John, Luke 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, uh, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. So far, the reading of God's Word. The title of my message this morning is People Get Ready. Some of us um, like to live sort of moment by moment, by the seat of the pants, as some say. But no matter how you uh, prefer to live, the reality is that life requires a certain amount of preparation. 
Uh, boys and girls, maybe one of the things that you, you hear your folks say to you, maybe you even heard it this morning, is you need to get ready. Anybody hear that this morning? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Some big people are going, yeah. Yeah, we need to get ready. We need to get ready for church. Boys and girls, sometimes you need to get ready to go to school. Uh, sometimes you need to get ready to go to bed. Life, a lot of life is involved in this thing called getting ready. Uh, when, you're, when you're young boys and girls, you're going to school, how come, you, how come you're studying so much? Why don't you just go outside and play all the time? Why do you got to go to school? Why do you got to learn math and English? Well, because you're getting ready, aren't you? You're getting ready for a fruitful, productive adult life. And you're going to find, boys and girls, when you get to adult life, you're still getting ready. You're getting ready for the job interview. Uh, when, you, when you get a job, well, then you've got to get ready for the promotion, or, or you're going to get ready for retirement. If you have children, then you've got to get ready for their education and colleges and their, their weddings, their marriages. I just uh, talked to a man recently who has six girls. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I looked at that family picture. Wow, six girls. Um, that's a lot of weddings. <laughs> you got to get ready for these things. But of all the things in life that you need to get ready for, there is nothing that comes close to the essential necessity of getting ready to die. One of the most tragic things in human existence is if you, are, if you are about to die and you realize you are not ready, and it happens all the time. We need to be ready to meet Jesus. We need to be ready for eternal things. And so the message that we have here in Luke chapter 3 this morning is a, it's a message of urgency, a message about seriousness. That God has invaded this world and it's, it's necessary for us to be ready for that a meeting that we're going to have with Jesus. We need to take seriously what God is about, what God has done, and what God has promised to do. And so John the Baptist, we find here in Luke 3, came to Israel to get them ready to meet their maker, get them ready to meet their king. You have an outline, uh, maybe to hand it out to you, help you follow along. Just two main points this morning. We're going to look at, or, or, sorry, we've got the ministry and the message and the Messiah. The ministry, the message, and the Messiah. Uh, Luke starts out by telling us when all these things began to happen. And he has a very detailed description here in the first three verses. He's pointing out who's governor, who, where, uh, all the various rulers, who's uh, leading, uh, the, who's the high priest in the temple. Uh, he's, he's taking all these things sort of as tax just to, to attach the story that he's going to tell directly to the pages of history. Uh, Luke, is a, he's an historian. And remember, he's writing to Theophilus, his good friend, and he's writing to Theophilus to assure him that everything he'd heard about Jesus is true. And it is not true in a spiritual, ephemeral sense. It is true in an actual, historical, it really happened sense. And so Luke, as the historian, is insisting on the historicity of the gospel account because the historicity of the gospel account is essential to its power. Either these things really happened or it's a myth. It's a religious story. It's a fable of some sort. And, and it makes all the difference whether it really historically happened or it didn't historically happen. It's the difference between life and death. 
Whenever you hear uh, some preacher or some writer, uh, some commentator suggest that the historicity of the gospel accounts is not really that important, run. Right? It's a false gospel. Luke is convinced the historicity is essential. And so he lets us know exactly when these things happened. They happened right around 27 A.D. It's interesting that uh, one of the, this text that we have here actually is, is one of the texts the liberals have, have often used to charge that the gospel accounts are not historical. The issue is with Lysanias, the governor of uh, the Tetrarch of Abilene. Uh, there were no records of there being a, uh, a man named Lysanias ruling um, during the time Luke said. There was a Lysanias 60 years prior and so the, uh, the, the story was, well, Luke just got it wrong. He's a man, right? People make mistakes. Uh, he, just, he just got it wrong. Well, recently, uh, documents have uh, been found, discovered, which, which proves exactly what Luke was saying. If you uh, just want an, uh, an interesting hobby, I, I recommend to you archaeology, the study of archaeology, and all the ways that archaeology is uh, proving the liberals uh, wrong, all the, uh, those who made accusations against Scripture, proving them wrong and proving the Bible to be absolutely true. The Holy Spirit's a fairly good historian. And so we have a count here, right, that's absolutely true. And so John begins his ministry, the year 27 A.D. In that year, a most remarkable thing happened. The Word of God came to John. Now, we just read that and we think, well, that's nice. We need to remember the Word of the Lord had not come to anyone in over 400 years. Heaven had been silent, no message, for 400 years. God's people had lived, they had the Scripture, but there had been no message from God about the promised Messiah, about what God was going to do, about God's continuing engagement with them, 400 years of silence. And now suddenly, in 27 AD, the Word of the Lord came, the Word of God came to John. And this, this phrase, the Word of the Lord came to, classic Old Testament language for, uh, re regarding the prophets. Prophets were not volunteers in the Old Testament. They weren't men who just sort of had an interest in theological issues and decided that they had a, a message or um, something that they would like to tell people. You find that when a, when a prophet appears on the pages of Scripture, it's not it didn't volunteer. The word of the Lord came to Amos. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. These are men chosen by God, appointed by God, and given a message from God himself. And the words that they are to speak then are exactly God's message, nothing else. Peter wants to remind us of that. 2 Peter 1.20, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so when we read here that the word of God came to John, what we should hear is God is speaking again. God has a message that he wants to convey to the world. This is, um, this is wonderful news because when God speaks, he makes things happen. God's word, God's voice is the creative, dynamic power of the universe. When he speaks, a whole galaxy comes into being. And when God speaks into the world today, his word never falls to the ground. It always accomplishes the task for which it was sent. And we praise God that God's purposes in speaking today by his Holy Spirit through the Word, His purposes are purposes of grace. 
That's wonderful news. That God's desire in speaking is to save, to rescue, to deliver. And so God speaks now, comes to John. The word, of the, the word of God comes to John. Well, what was the message? It was a message, first of all, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John came, verse 3, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's calling the people of Israel to repent. Again, if you know anything about the Old Testament prophets, you know that was their message. They were, they were God's... Um, Sort of his lawyers. Israel was in covenant with God. There was a covenant document that they had all agreed to. And God would send his prophets to come and prosecute his charges against his people because they were ignoring the covenant document. They were acting as if God's law was, was, uh, it was interesting. It was, they could claim it as evidence of their special relationship with God, but they didn't need to actually do it. I mean, maybe some serious people, some of the priests, some of the uh, Pharisees, the, the, the holy people, they got into that sort of thing. But for the rest of, you know, they, 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 they did their best. They got along as they could. God would say to them, right, you people worship me with your mouth, but your heart isn't there. Your hearts are far from me. And so the prophets would come and call people, God's people, back to the reality of, of the covenant, back to a reality, a real relationship with God, back to the real thing. Stop ignoring God's law. Stop ignoring his will, his word, his saving purposes in the world. Stop ignoring his concern for the poor. Wake up. Repent. See, the great sin of God's people throughout history is is this ability to somehow live in relationship with God, just to claim to belong to God, to expect the blessings of God, and yet living their, uh, our, our life on our own terms, for our own purposes, pursuing our own pleasures, and thinking that because we're God's people, because we're Christians, right, that's fine. Well, John, John's message is... Um, a very, very strong rebuke of that presumption. He comes to preach a message of repentance. We'll get to that a bit more in a moment. Let me, let's just move secondly here. He's a herald. Uh, Luke points out that as John comes pro proclaiming his message of repentance, he is actually the last of the Old Testament prophets, but the greatest of the Old Testament prophets because John is making a people ready for God. So let every... Um, uh, mountain be, be brought down, every valley be raised up. If you, if you remember hearing in the old times when a king would travel and visit his kingdom, heralds would go before him. And they would not only announce the king is coming, they would announce the king is coming so you could get ready for the king coming. Right? When a herald of the king would say, uh, the king is going to be here next Tuesday, nobody said, well, that was interesting. Uh, what you would do is you'd get busy. You would be cleaning up the town. Get rid of the garbage, um, getting the vagrants off the streets. Uh, if, if the road outside the town was a mess, you'd get to work preparing it, making it ready. If you did not do that and the king came and saw that you had made no preparations for his coming, there was going to be trouble. And so a herald would come not just to announce that the, the, the king was coming, but the, the impact of that announcement was you had best get ready. That's exactly what John is doing. Spiritually, he's, 
He's calling the people, not only letting them know the king is coming, but letting them know that they need to then get ready. Well, how did he do that? Well, let's look secondly at the message. It's a message of warning. Verses 7 through 9, we have a summary of John's message. It's a a sermon that might seem uh, a bit strong. People are coming out to be baptized by him. And John says to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come. Now, you don't have to be real sensitive to to sense that's that's kind of strong. I mean, why does he talk like that? He's, he's saying this to people who are coming to be baptized. These are concerned people, religiously serious people, good people, moral people in many ways. So why does he use such, such offensive language, such strong language? You brood of vipers? Basically, Saying sons, children of the serpent? Why would you talk like that? Well, we'd have to remember that this isn't John's message. Right? The first thing we need to remember, this is God's message. John is just saying what God wanted him to say. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's speaking by the Holy Spirit. So John is doing this by divine inspiration. So why would, why would God want John to talk like this? Well, you see, God inspires John to use really strong language because that message has to break through the religious apathy and self-righteous confidence of those who were coming to him. The people who were coming to John were coming because they liked what he was saying. They liked his strong moral stance. They liked that he was telling wicked people they needed to change. They wanted to be identified with that kind of message. But they did not understand the severity of their own situation. They were not aware that they themselves were in great danger. They did not realize that they were not ready to meet the Lord. You know what it means to be deceived? You know what it means to be deceived? To be deceived is to be wrong and not realize it. It's just not to be aware that what you believe is a lie. You don't, you don't understand it's a lie. You don't, you, you don't think it's a lie. It makes sense to you. You see, these people were believing a lie. And the lie was, because we're children of Abraham, we're going to be okay. And John goes immediately to that in his message. Do not begin to say to yourselves. Don't even go there, is what he's saying. Why? Because that's where they lived. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able to make is able from the stones to raise up children for Abraham. You can just kind of sense how the conversation goes. These people come to John. John's a great guy. John, man, that man can preach. What a powerful message. John, we want to come and be baptized by you. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to escape the wrath to come? John, we're the good guys. We're we're Abraham's children. 
He doesn't apologize. He says, friend, God can make that stone and a child of Abraham. In other words, so what? So you're a child of Abraham. There's no merit in that. There's no saving benefit in that. Why do, why do you assume that being a child of Abraham means that, some, that somehow um, the law, in all of its thundering tenacity and severity, that, that the law is no threat to you? Why, why do you think that? It says do not do these things, and yet you do them. Why do you think being a child of Abraham means that, that you're, you're protected from the wrath of God? See, there's, being a child of Abraham is no cure for sin. Being a child of Abraham is no protection from divine justice. In fact, it just makes you more culpable. If you look at the book of Romans, Paul will say to them, you Jews, you have the law, good for you. But you don't keep the law. So you're just in the same place the Gentiles are. See, one of the, one of the most common sins of God's people is the sin of false presumption. These Israelites seem to believe that being a child of Abraham was an assurance of divine favor in some way, that it somehow protected them from God. It made their sins not quite so noticeable or serious. They did not need to then radically fear God or escape the wrath to come. This presumption hung like a veil over their heart and mind, so that it just, it just didn't make sense to them to think that they were actually in danger of being destroyed. There was no sense of danger. So John gives them a sense of danger. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's, that's a scary message. You don't put an axe to the base of a tree in order to prune the tree. You put it to the base of the tree to destroy the tree. And if the axe is already being applied, the chips are already flying, there is precious little time left for that tree. It is on the very brink of death and destruction. That's John's message. The axe is even now laid to the root because the king has come. Friends, here, I just hope you get a sense of how serious God is about repentance and the fruit of repentance. See, John, John is telling these, these good, moral children of Abraham, if you do not repent, you will die. You will go to hell. Jesus had the same message. Remember that? When the Tower of Siloam fell and Jesus asked his disciples, what do you think about that? You think that those people were more wicked than everybody else? I tell you no, but that God's purposes might be fulfilled. And he says, unless you repent, it's going to happen to you. Riken tells the story of a 19th century Methodist preacher, Peter Cartwright. And uh, he once preached to President Andrew Jackson. He was informed prior to the service that uh, the president was going to be there. And uh, he was warned not to say anything out of line. So when he got up to preach, uh, he said, I understand that President Andrew Jackson is here, and I've been requested to be guarded in my remarks. So let me say this carefully. Uh, Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent. <clears throat> Andrew Jackson 
President of the United States will go to hell if he does not repent. And that's true for every single one of us. You will go to hell, friend, without repentance. There is no salvation without repentance. That's a message we just have to hear. It's John's message by the Spirit of God. He's calling the good people of Israel to repent. To recognize that they were desperately in need of a Savior. They needed to be forgiven. They needed to be rescued. Their morality was worthless in in terms of meriting salvation. They they, they had nothing to cover themselves when, when the law of God was applied to them. And so John preaches the message of repentance, a baptism of repentance. So there's a wonderful sign attached to the message, baptism, which signifies and seals a wonderful promise, the forgiveness of sin. If you repent and are baptized, you will be forgiven. It's exactly what Peter told the first Christians when he preaches his message, and they're struck to the heart, and they say, what shall we do? He says what? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your your sins, and you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, this is, the, this, is the God's, this is God's message for people, for good Christian people. That repentance isn't just something you did once in the past. Repentance is something, it's a way of life. It's what we do day after day after day as we turn again and again from our sin, again and again to Christ. This is the message. Repent and be saved. Repent and be forgiven. And then with that repentance, John says, uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So you don't just come and you get baptized, you do this thing, but repentance now, there's a lifestyle of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance isn't just, it's not just turning away from certain sins, it's, it's turning away from a certain way of being in the world and turning unto God. This is where people often get stuck. Just talking to someone recently, I think, who's struggling with this. This person was saying that, you know, they've, they've stopped certain sins. So people think that if they've stopped drinking and stopped doing drugs and stopped sleeping around, uh, they've cleaned up their act. Well, the act wasn't the problem. The act was just the symptom of the problem. The problem was a rebellious heart. And you can be just as rebellious as a moral person as an immoral person. So the issue is for repentance is, has the heart changed? Is there an acknowledgement that you really are a sinner before a holy God? Do you, is that sense, is that reality there for you? Some of you young people, I want to challenge you. Love you. So thankful for you. But I see some of you sleeping. Somehow just thinking that you're, you're going to be okay. You're, you're, you're a good kid. You're here at Harvest, but I don't. Do you know that you're lost without Jesus? And that if you don't repent, you'll go to hell? Do you know that? That's that's, that's John's message. It's a serious message. It's intended to be serious. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the fruit will be a genuine sorrow for sin. It'll be the fact that I've, I've sinned against the God who made me. I sinned against the God who, who gave his son to die for people like me, the God who's blessed me with so many good things, and I've sinned against him. There will be, a fruit will be the desire to honor God with your life. And so when these people are struck because of their sin, and they say, what should we do? Notice what John tells them to do. If you got two tunics, 
Share with those who have, don't have any. And if, and if you have food, do the same thing. And tax lectures came, and, and John pointed his finger at, at their specific sin. Stop extorting. Don't collect more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers, what should we do? Um, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Be content with your wages. You see, repentance looks like a, it, it begins with a changed heart towards God. God, I want to serve you. I want to I please you. I want to bear fruit for your glory. And then it spills over into changed life. There will be external evidences, changed practices. And it often involves money. Because it's, as I said before, money is such an accurate indicator of where your heart is. I think how you spend your money, how you spend your time, where you go in your mind. But John here points his finger almost in every situation here to money. What do you do with your money? What do you do with your money? Are you honoring God with it? Are you blessing other people with it? Are you supporting the gospel work with it? Can you be saved and not use your money for the cause of Christ? I don't think so. I can't imagine how. That's what John is saying. And if they failed to do this, if there was no fruit in keeping with repentance, which tree gets chopped down? It's the tree that doesn't have any fruit. There is no genuine sorrow for sin. There's no humility before the Lord, no genuine concern and care for others, nor no glad sacrificial participation in the cause of Christ, no hunger for holiness. The axe is at the root of the tree. Who knows if you have tomorrow? What just struck me as I, as I prepared this message is it's just the utter, utter seriousness. But John didn't stop with a message of repentance. John pointed to a person. The Messiah. People were starting to wonder, man, this guy is really on fire. He speaks with authority. Could this be the Christ? And John answered them all by saying, verse 16, I baptized you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John is saying, uh, are you impressed with me? The one who comes is so much greater than I am, I don't even deserve to untie his sandal. He is vastly superior to me. Do you appreciate this baptism? It's only preparatory. The one who is coming is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire from God. It's a baptism that actually uh, brings dead people to life and makes rebels into adopted children of God. Did you think John's message was strong? Did, were you offended by the axe part? Well, the one who is coming is the axe. He comes with a sickle. The winnowing, the winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This Messiah is the one that John preached. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. The wheat's going to be gathered into the barn for eternal joy, and the chaff is going to be burned with unquenchable fire in eternal torment. And then it says, verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. When I first read that, I just kind of smiled. With many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, and I'm thinking, well, where's the good news? Have we heard about vipers and axes and being burned in the fire? Where's the good news? Well, the good news is Jesus, and John's talking about Jesus. This isn't, right, Luke doesn't give us the whole gospel here in, verse, in chapter 3. That's, that's coming. 
But the good news is that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the good news. That God has come into this world. He's going to, Jesus Christ comes as a judge. But he comes first with a message of salvation. Come to me all you are weary, heavy laden. I will give you rest. I came for the, to seek and to save the lost. Came to give his life as a ransom for many. So that if you're the tax collector, you're the prostitute, you're the rebel, you're the sinner, there is a Savior been introduced into this world in the person of Jesus Christ where you can go and be forgiven of all of your sins. That's the good news. You can admit the truth of what you are. You can admit the failure that, that is in your life. All your sin. Isn't it beautiful that we, there's a place we can go? The person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, confessing the truth. And asking to be forgiven. And God says, I'm willing to forgive. And God then gives that grace of repentance and faith. Right? The Holy Spirit is able to give us that grace to believe and to repent that we hold on to Jesus. We're not saved by repenting. We're saved by Jesus. But the way we come to Jesus is by that gift of true faith, a repentant faith, where we hate sin. We want to love God. We want, to, we want to know Christ. We want to, we, want to, we want to participate in his mission and work in the world. We want to be made like him. That's what John is calling us to. That's the good news that John has to proclaim. It's about Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, we start a new year. It's a, it's a time for resolutions, isn't it? I hope you've made some. I think it just shows that you're aware that you're not a finished product. But here's, here's some resolutions for 2015. Let's resolve, by God's grace, to grow in repentance and faith. Let's resolve to be serious about the things that matter. To recognize that, that we live in a busy world and it's a passing world. And, and, and who wins the football game this afternoon? Okay. It has no significance. It has no significance. Who wins the Super Bowl? Who cares? Who won it last year? Do, do, do you recognize that the, the, what the world is chattering about and screaming about and advertising about? It's not serious. But your soul is. And maybe you've been a member of the church all your life, but, but my question to you is, are you, are you serious about knowing Jesus? Are you serious about confessing your sin? Do you want to change? Do you want to grow? Do you want to be more and more like Jesus? Do you want to be more and more freed from your sin and, and more and more filled with love of God and more and more able to bear fruit to bless other people? Is that what you hunger for? Is that what you desire for? Let's make that our resolution. Let's believe everything that Jesus is for us Let's let Jesus and his goodness, his love, his kindness, his grace, let's let that shape our life and let's be serious because he's coming again. He's coming again. And this time the winnowing fork will do its work and the separation will happen. Let's be ready. Let's be ready. Amen. Oh, Father in heaven, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that Jesus came for people like us. I thank you that he loves us, gave his life for us. 
Father, I pray for any here this morning who are not ready to meet him, that your Holy Spirit would do its beautiful work of giving conviction for sin. Father, I pray that this year we would see the Holy Spirit at work converting people. And Lord, maybe someone in this room right now needs to just admit they need to be converted. They need to be serious about their sin and the fact that their religion is no protection for them. They need to know Jesus or they will die. And Lord God, I pray that you'd give grace then to that person. And Father, uh, thank you that you're willing when we come and we confess our sin and we ask to know Jesus. When we seek him, we will find him when we seek him with all of our heart. Lord God, help us be serious as a church about our faith, serious about eternity. Help us to be serious about our neighbor's lost condition. Help us be serious about our helplessness and serious about prayer. Oh God in heaven, I, I thank you that by your power we can grow and bear fruits in keeping with repentance. I pray, Lord God, we would see that happening in our homes, our marriages, in our hearts, that we would see it happening here in the church, that there would be a spiritual power evident because God is at work. May all the praise go to you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.